All right, how's everybody doing today? Hotep, hey, this is Michael M. Hotep, founder of the African History Network, host of the African History Network show. I'm a talk show host, researcher, lecture writer, and historian. So it is Saturday, July 16th, 2022. And we are live. This is class number nine of Ancient Kemet, the Moors, and the Ma'afa. Understanding the transatlantic slave trade, what they didn't teach, what they didn't teach you in schools. This is class number nine of ancient Kemet, the Moors, and the Ma'afa. Understanding the transatlantic slave trade, what they didn't teach you in school. So this is a normally it's a ten week online course that I teach, and normally I teach this at my online school. Uh, but th this time around, teaching this is going to be twelve weeks. And today's session, I decided to make today's session free. We're doing this on our social media platforms, but it will be archived also at our online school with the previous eight sessions. Um, so Kemet's one of the original names for Egypt. And in this class, we deal with thousands of years of history and what leads up to the transatlantic slave trade taking place. So can everybody hear me okay? I want to make sure everybody can hear me okay. Everybody share this broadcast on your social media platforms. Invite your friends to tune in. Uh, you're going to learn a lot uh, in this class, okay? And you can register for the uh, full 12-week online course. We have the uh, link here in the thread of the broadcast, and it's on sale $60, regularly $130. So we have the information there. So uh, the class I asked on uh, Tuesday, I think it was, uh, the class we did Tuesday, you know, we talked about Hannibal Barca. We talked about the uh, uh, Battle of Kanai and uh 216 bc and uh we talked about hannibal fighting against the romans and uh we talked about the punic wars things like this we dealt with all that class number eight okay so when you register for the class if you uh miss class number eight you can go back and watch it in its entirety all right and we talked about why africa is not named after uh Publius cornelius Scipio africanus that's just blatantly false no uh, Africanus means belonging to Africa. You reference Cassell's Latin English Dictionary or any Latin English Dictionary. Uh, Africanus means belonging to Africa. Um, and he takes his surname after the Battle of Zama in 202 BC, where he defeats Hannibal Barca. And we know that um, Africa, the, the prefix Afri, is Dr. Rick Clark talked about in African People and World History, pages 14 and 15. That referred to were black African people in Algeria and Tunisia. Um, Tunisia used to be called Carthage. Okay, so no, Africa was not, not named after Publius Cornelius Scipio Canis. Uh, I want to make sure everybody can hear me all right. And uh, you can uh, uh, register for this uh, full, there's going to be a 12 week online course. We have the um, information here in the thread of the broadcast and also on our website, AfricanHistoryNetwork.com. And we do the sessions live. All the sessions are archived and recorded. You can go back and watch it any time. Okay. So um, let me know if uh, I'm coming through okay, if you can hear me all right. So uh, last class, we also talked about uh, two African empires that Europeans and Arabs tried to claim as their own. Two African empires that Europeans and Arabs tried to claim as their own. Carthage was one of them, the Carthaginians who were descendants of the Phoenicians. Carthage was one of them. But also another one um, was uh, Namidia, Namidia, okay? 
And uh, so we, we talked about Namidia last class as well. And uh, Namidia uh, existed from uh, about uh, 200 uh, C uh, uh, to, uh, I forgot what it was, 200, uh, let's see, Namidia is, uh, yeah, 200 BC, to, uh, 202 BC to 46 BC, Namidia existed, okay? And that was in uh, Northern Africa, uh, in the uh, northern, the territory that they, Algeria, in that territory. Um, so, so we're going to start out with today's class. I want to finish uh, up dealing with, with three other uh, African empires that uh, Europeans tried to claim as their own. And one of them was uh, ancient Nubia or Tai, okay? And we know, uh, which is which is the word Nubia, is, is Greek. We know that this was um, existed from about 4500 BC or BCE before the Common Era to about 500, okay, or Common Era, all right. Um, and when we look at uh, ancient Nubia, okay, and we know that uh, Nubia is going to be the mother of ancient Kemet. Kemet's one of the original names for Egypt. Nubia is the mother of ancient Kemet, and we know that um, the grandmother of uh, Kemet was uh, Abyssinia or Ethiopia. All right. And let me check. I want to check. Um, okay, how I'm coming through. All right. Okay, so let's go back uh, to the PowerPoint presentation here. So ancient Nubia, also known as Kush. Not the Kush people are smoking, K-U-S-H. Ancient Nubia, also known as Kush, was a region along the uh, Nile River. And we know the Nile is over 4,100 miles long. Along the Nile River, located in northern Sudan and southern Egypt. It was home to uh, some of Africa's earliest kingdoms. So what today is the upper portion of Sudan and the lower portion of Egypt, his, historically that area was, was Nubia, all right? Uh, it was home to some of Africa's earliest kingdoms known for rich deposits of gold. Uh, Nubia was a major trading uh, port. Nubia was a major trading port for uh, luxury goods that came from Sub-Saharan Africa such as incense, ivory, and ebony, such as incense, ivory, and ebony. All right, let's continue. Okay, so the first monarchy of recorded history was established in Nubia. The Nubians were also known for their exceptional archery skills that provided the military strength rulers. Uh, kings or Nasubites or pharaohs of, of Nubia ultimately conquered and ruled Egypt or Kemet for about uh, one century. Monuments still stand in modern Egypt and Sudan at, uh, at the sites where uh, Nubian rulers built cities, temples, and royal pyramids. We know that uh, also there are more pyramids in the Sudan than there are in Egypt. There's as many pyramids in the Sudan as there are in Egypt as well. Okay. Once again, the uh, Nubia Tanehesi is the mother of uh, 
ancient Kemet, okay, ancient Egypt. All right, let's continue. So in the 1800s, the Western world's interest in Nubia was awakened by the rediscovery of the ancient empire's monuments, by the rediscovery of the ancient empire's monuments, which were reported which were reported also simultaneously by uh, um, individual British and American explorers. Many of them found it difficult to credit indigenous Africans for building such a civilization. Same thing with uh, uh, ancient Kemet as well. Uh, they, they, they found it hard to uh, European and some Africans as well, some African-Americans, but Europeans found it hard to believe that African people could build a civilization like that and can be advanced in technology, advanced in science, agriculture, etc. OK, so they said that these were Europeans who did this or these were brown skinned Caucasians or in some cases they're saying saying aliens came down and built the pyramid built the pyramids because Europeans can't figure out how the pyramids were built. So you have all these excuses that are given trying to rob African people of this greatness. Okay. So in the 1800s, the Western world's interest in Nubia was awakened by the rediscovery of the ancient empire's monuments, which were reported almost simultaneously individual British, French, and American explorers, many of them found it difficult to credit indigenous uh, Africans for building such a civilization. Now, during the 1840s, German Egyptologist Carl Richard Lepsius, who uh, lived from 1810 to 1884, he asserted confidently that the Greek term Ethiopian, when referring to uh, the ancient civilized people of Kush did not apply to Negroes. Now, Ethiopian Ethiops is Greek, referring to sunburnt, referring referring to the complexion of those Africans. Okay, so you have uh, Europeans trying to say, oh, because at one time what we call Africa that was also referred to as Ethiopia. So you have some european uh, uh, uh archaeologists etc trying to say oh well the term ethiopian doesn't refer to uh negroes so he confidently asserted that greek term ethiopian when referring to the ancient civilized people of Kush, did not apply to negroes was used to describe reddish-skinned people closely related to the egyptians who belong to the caucasian race all right. So um, you had some and, and Tony Browder deals with this in Nile Valley contributions to civilization. You had some anthropologists who said that the ancient Egyptians were brown skinned Caucasians, uh, all types of excuses trying to say they're anything but black African people because they, they could not have built something like this. And then at the same time, if you acknowledge they built this, well, you you were enslaving their their descendants also, you know, descendants coming from West Africa, Central Africa, Angola, uh, the Congo. You're enslaving them. So, uh, if if you're if you are 
raising up this civilization and you gain so much from, from that from that civilization then at the same time then how could you justify conquering other other uh african people who are in many cases related to those in the Nile valley because we know the dogon and yoruba come from the Nile valley it's a lot of different uh african and ethnic groups that migrate from East into central africa into west africa so how do you how do you justify this is this the same thing we're going to see when uh with the moor with the african moors and to separate the moors and say oh well these are not africans these are these these aren't the same people who are being enslaved things like this okay um it's it, europeans are trying to rationalize uh enslaving african people who they see are inferior but then at the same time raping and pillaging african civilization and african culture okay how's everybody doing share this broadcasting on social media platforms about your friends to tune in okay so this is class uh it's going to be a 12 week this time around teaches a 12 week online history class we normally teach this at my online school but we're doing it today on social media we're making class today free ancient him at the moors and the maaf for understanding the transatlantic slave trade where they've been teaching school you can still register for this 12 week online class it's on sale six dollars regularly 130 dollars it's live all the sessions are archived and recorded so as soon as you register you can go back and watch the previous eight sessions and a couple of them my allergy was it was really uh bothering me so i had to we had to cut those short my allergy i'm allergic to pollen this has been a very very bad, bad pollen season so my allergy is much better is <laughs> much better now and uh than than it was, was uh, a couple of months ago is uh, six weeks ago or so is much better now okay let's continue and then um, this uh, uh, this session, this will be archived at the online school. Those who registered for the class, this will be archived with the other classes also. Now, again, in 1852, when the American diplomat Bayard Taylor visited Sudan and gazed upon the temple carvings of gods and rulers with clearly African feet, he also found it inconceivable that they could have been created by black-skinned Africans. Rather, he asserted, echoing uh, Lepsius, they uh, must have been created by Egyptians or immigrants from India or Arabia or an offshoot of the white race or an offshoot of the white race. They're, they're trying to do anything they can to say that these were not African people. It's, it's just it's, um, similar to uh, when the Italians are defeated by the Ethiopians at the uh, Battle of Adawa, okay? The Battle of Adawa in uh, 1896. And uh, I, I, we've talked about this before. Um, and the, the, the Italians told the world that the Ethiopians were Europeans because they, didn't want, they did not want to admit that they were defeated by African people. Okay, how many people are familiar with the Battle of Ottawa? Uh, this is an article here from blackpass.org. Blackpass.org is one of the sources we use in the class. This deal with tons of articles and uh, excerpts from books, things like this, video clips, etc. Uh, this is uh, 
So this is the binder for the class here. This is the binder that I use uh, as reference for articles, things like this. And then there's some books that we wrestle uh, for the class. But if we look at this article here from uh, blackpass.org, the Battle of Ottawa. You see Ottawa spelled a couple different ways, A-D-O-W-A or E-W-A. This was 96, okay? So this was the Italians fighting against the Ethiopians. In March of 1896, and let me increase the uh, size here. I want to make sure you can see this. In March of 1890, Ethiopian forces under the leadership of Emperor Menelik II, Emperor Menelik II, surprised the world by defeating an Italian army sent to conquer the empire. In the following article, Raymond Jonas, the Giovanni and Annie Costigan history at the University of Explores that victory at Ottawa. His article is drawn from his recent book, The Battle of Ottawa, African Victory in the Age of Empire. Uh, so the battle, I'm not going to go through the whole article here, but just... Uh, I just want to hit on this point here. The Battle of Ottawa, March 1st, 1896, was a stunning victory for Ethiopia, but a rout and a disaster for Italy, but a rout and disaster for Italy. Uh, and it played out against a background of almost unrelenting European expansion into Africa. So this is after the Berlin Conference of 1884 and uh, 1885 where those, these European nations carve up Africa into colonies. This is after that. And, and um, Italy was the only African nation outside of Liberia that was not colonized by Europeans. We know Liberia was founded by the United States, the American, coloniz the American Colonization Society, right about 1821, Liberia was founded. All right, let's continue here. Um, so Ottawa, the story of of Africans seeing uh, seen to their own freedom played out against a background of almost unrelenting uh, Africa, uh, European expansion, almost unrelenting European expansion. Now, the success of Ethiopia's forces assured that uh, Ethiopia would be the only African country successfully to resist European colonization before 1914. In 1914 is when World War One starts. Okay, so in my second class that I teach um, uh, normally on Sundays, from the Civil War to the Civil Rights Movement and Black Power, 1865 to 1968, we cover that period of time that includes also World War One as well as World War Two. Now, it also resonated powerfully in post-emancipation uh, America after um, the slaves are freed and. You know, 1865, Emancipation Proclamation, 1863, which did not free the slaves, but after the Civil War uh, ends in 1865. It also resonated powerfully in post-emancipation America, where hierarchies of race and ethnicity were only beginning a process of challenging renegotiation, only beginning a process of challenging and renegotiation. So this was uh, 1896, Ottawa. This is the same year as uh, Plessy versus Ferguson, U.S. Supreme Court case, 1896 as well, which really solidifies uh, the Jim Crow laws, all right, 
Uh, now, Italian interest in East Africa dates from 1869 when opening when the opening of the Suez Canal transformed the commercial and strategic significance of the Red Sea coast. An official Italian presence did not begin until they established themselves at the Red Sea port of uh, Massawa in uh, uh, 1885, at which the Italians began to move up into what are now the Eritrean highlands. Okay, and we know Eritrea is right near Ethiopia. Now, Ethiopian commanders sought to halt the uh, Italian advance with notable success but the Italians artfully played on rivalries among Ethiopian leaders. By 1890, the Italians had secured control over significant territory west and uh, territory west and south of Massawa. Uh, they announced the creation of the colony of Eritrea with a capital at uh, Asmara. Now, the Italians continued to push westward into Sudan that we just talked about, Sudan and southward toward the northern Ethiopian province of Tigray. In late 1894, uh, Ras Mangasha, the ruler of Tigray, used the pretext of war against the uh, dervishes to uh, mobilize forces to resist, it, to resist Italian incursions. In a series of victories in uh, early 1895, the Italians defeated uh, Mangasha's forces they pushed uh, Mangasha deep into northern Ethiopia, establishing fortified uh, positions in Tigray and uh, Agame uh, provinces, uh, vastly expanding the territory under Italian control. Okay, now uh, to skip through some of this here. Uh, in, se in September 1895, Emperor Menelik II, king of the southern province of Shoah, called the uh, population of Ethiopia to arms. He began to lead a massive force of some 100,000 men northward to Italian-occupied territories. Through, through late 1895 and into early months of 1896, uh, Emperor Menelik II led a brilliant campaign uh, that forced the over- extended Italians to fight on his terms by threatening to outflank the Italian forces the Italian forces and threaten Eritrea Menelik maneuvered into a position that left them that left their supply lines exposed okay he maneuvered the Italians into a position that left their supply lines exposed vulnerable to a population that was now turning against the occupiers all right. So uh, skip through, make a long story short. By uh, the, the noon of March 1st, 1896, Italian forces were in desperate, uh, were, were in a desperate panic retreat back toward Eritrea. Uh, victory at Adawa sealed the unification of Ethiopia and solidified Emperor Menelik II's claim to the title of emperor. Europeans and European Americans interpreted this story of Attawa and the Battle of Attawa in different ways. For some, it was an opportunity to discredit Italy militarily. For some, it was an opportunity to discredit Italy militarily. For others, it was important to uh, advance the view that the Ethiopians were not black. 
this is this is what Italy was telling the world. Ethiopians were not black because they didn't want to admit they got the behinds beaten by African people. For others, it was important to advance the view that the Ethiopians were not black, thus explaining away the significance of white and European defeat. Ethiopian victory secured independence for more than a generation. It also assured Ethiopia's status as a beacon throughout the African diaspora. And we know that when uh, um, World War II comes along and uh, uh, when uh, Italy invades Ethiopia again, Dr. John Henry Clark talks about this in the documentary, A Great and Mighty Walk, A Great and Mighty Walk. You had African-American men in this country who wanted to enlist in the army and fight on behalf of uh, Ethiopia to fight against the uh, Italians. OK, and the in the U.S. government wouldn't let them do it. But Italian-Americans were allowed by the U.S. government to go and enlist in the Italian army. OK, and fight on behalf of Italy. Okay, so another one of these African uh, empires that Europeans tried to claim as their own is, is Great Zimbabwe, okay? Now, the kingdom of Great Zimbabwe existed from about 1220 BCE, I'm sorry, 1220 Common Era to 1450 Common Era, okay? AD, what Europeans call AD, uh, Anno Domini in the year of our Lord. 1220 AD to 1450 AD or common era. Okay. Uh, the civilization of Great Zimbabwe was one of the most significant civilizations during the medieval period. Great Zimbabwe is also extraordinary because of the magnificent scale of its structures. It's uh, its most striking edifice referred to as the great enclosure. The great enclosure has walls as high as 36 feet, extending approximately 820 feet, making it the largest ancient structure south of the Sahara Desert. The largest ancient structure south of the Sahara Desert. Um, in the 1800s, European explorers, imperialists, and colonizers were stunned by Great Zimbabwe's uh, grandeur and cunning workmanship. So they attributed the texture so they attributed the texture to portuguese travelers arabs chinese persians or even biblical characters such as king solomon and the queen of sheba so now you're going to go now you're going to attribute this attribute this to biblical characters not historical figures so now to rob Africans of this accomplishment and to show this level of civilization they had. Now you want to try to ascribe this to uh, biblical characters. And I'm going to say this as delicate as delicately as I can. Um, I may say some things that go outside the circumference of some people's awareness. Just because you disagree with it or don't like it or don't like it or never heard it before does not mean it's not true. Just means you have to do some research to understand what I'm talking about. There's a reason why when you go to historical museums like world history museums, museums that deal with 
history in ancient times, things like this. There's a reason why when you go to world history museums, you don't see biblical characters. There's a, when you go to world history museum, museums, notice usually you don't see biblical characters unless maybe they have a section possibly and they and this is about the bible but even then when they talk about biblical characters they make a clear distinction they'll say according to the bible it says such and such usually they won't say according to archaeological evidence according to history things like that world world history and religious literature are separate world histories and world history books religious literature is in religious literature so they want to try to credit king solomon and the queen of sheba for building the great enclosure in zimbabwe you'd be better off saying aliens built it you'd be better off saying aliens built it i'm, I'm gonna leave that right there <laughs> now according to the metropolitan museum of art Archaeological investigations conducted during the first uh, decades of the 20th century have dismissed those attributions and confirmed both the antiquity of the site and its African origins. It was built by the ancestors of the indigenous Shona people in who are in Zimbabwe today, the Shona people in the in the 11th century common era A.D., long before the first Europeans ever set foot in Zimbabwe. Long before the first Europeans ever set foot in Zimbabwe. Uh, we, we talked about Namibia in class number eight, okay? And Namibia we know is in uh, northern Algeria, in the area that's like Al Algeria today, so North Africa. Namibia is there, okay? Um, okay, so How's everybody doing? How y'all like this type of information? I'm going to continue because we're going to get into some of the history of the Moors here in just a minute. But I wanted to finish this up because we talked about in class number eight, we talked about Carthage because we dealt with Hannibal Barca, Publius Cornelius Scipio. Uh, we dealt with the Punic Wars. We know the Punic Wars are from uh, to about 264 B.C. to 146 B.C. when, when uh, Carthage was destroyed by Rome, okay, 146 B.C and uh these were the three african nations we're going to talk about axum in just a minute that i did not get to last class um norm normally i do this class at our online school today we're making this session free uh those who register for the online class this session will be archived with the other ones at our online school okay you can register for this full 10-week online class we have the information here in the thread of the broadcast the, the class is going to blow you away if you like this type of information, you're going to be blown away by the, the full class. This time around, we're going to do 12 sessions instead of 10 because there's so much information that I have to get to uh, and have done. Um, so this class is Ancient Kemet, the Moors, and the Ma'afa, Understanding the Transatlantic Slave Trade, where they didn't teach you in school. Uh, it's on sale $60, regularly $130. Uh, you can register right here. Just click uh, register here, and it takes you to the next page. Um, and uh, you can register there. Okay, as soon as you register, you can start watching the archive content. We do the sessions live. All the sessions are archived and recorded. 
uh, and you can go back and watch it anytime. They pull this over because I teach the class on uh, the 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 the, um, the classes are housed at uh, they're they're housed at Learn World, and we use uh, Crowdcast as the technology to actually broadcast the class. Okay, so when you click on register here, it takes you uh, to this next page here uh, at our Learn World, our online school. All right. Okay, so you can register for that. And then we have a, a bundle pack where you can register for both classes for only $100. The class is regularly $130 each, uh, but you can register for both classes for $100. The, uh, and there's some bonus uh, lectures you'll get from me in digital format also. The second class that I teach is from the Civil War to the Civil Rights Movement of Black Power, 1865 to 1968. I teach that normally on Sundays, 2 p.m. to uh 4 p.m eastern standard time we did a special session of the class actually uh thursday this past thursday july 14th i did a special session uh of the class because i was um uh i didn't teach it uh last weekend i was uh at an event last weekend or something i think it was so we did a special session thursday okay so we have the uh information here in the thread of the broadcast so you can register uh for the classes uh now and you can register for the uh course bundle also all right let's continue so the um axum is the uh next uh african empire that europeans tried to claim as their own europeans and arabs tried to claim as their own now, Axum existed from about 100 Common Era to 940 Common Era, or AD, what Europeans call AD. So the kingdom of Axum was a powerful Ethiopian Eritrean empire located in northern Ethiopia and Eritrea. It developed, it, it's, it developed its power by controlling the Red Sea trade routes, the Red Sea trade routes. Axum was ruled by the Negus Negast, uh, the kings, the kings of kings. Okay, uh, under King Azana, Axum was the most powerful empire in Northeast Africa, and in 350 Common Era, it sacked the Nubian kingdom of Marot. Now. Uh, in the latter part of the fourth century, Axum invaded the southern part of the Arabian Peninsula and occupied Yemen from 335 to 370. 335 to 370. At its height, Axum included um, uh, Axum included uh, the surrounding Ethiopian highlands. Uh, Beja, Noba, Kasu, and Arabian kingdoms, uh, Himyar, and Sabar. Uh, the kingdom of Axum was prosperous from 100 AD to 700 AD. It was contemporary with the Roman Empire, and according to the Persian religious leader Mani, M-A-N-I, uh, the Axumite uh, civilization was third among the four greatest of the time on par with Rome, Persia, and China. Now, in classical Africa, by Dr. Malefe Ketia Sante, which is another book that we reference uh, in the class, you don't have to buy any of these books. Also, by the way, if you want to for your library, you can. But 
as I've stated before, you don't have to buy any of these books to follow along. But uh, he talks about Axum. Um, let me see, page 14. I mean, chapter 14, what page is that? 72. So this is a, a really good book that deals with different periods of um, African history as well. Okay, so page, uh, what starts page 72, he deals with glorious Axum. Uh, the Axum Empire rose around 220 common era in the African country, which is called Ethiopia today. Axum, like Egypt, grew up, uh, grew up around a river. Uh, the Blue Nile starts in Ethiopia as a powerful nation. The Blue Nile starts in Ethiopia as a powerful nation. Axum would conquer the rest of Kush around 320 to 350 common era. Okay, so if you have this book at home, um, Classical Africa by Dr. Malefe Keti Asante, and I know Dr. Asante is a friend of mine. I've interviewed him uh, a couple of times on the African History Network show. Uh, he talks about uh, Axum. It uh, starts. It's chapter 14. Starts page. 72 okay if you have this book at home starts on page 72 so you can pull that off the shelf and uh, research that as well he goes on to talk about axum axum's gift to the world page 79 Okay, chapter 15. All right. So let's continue. Uh, all right, so the Axumite civilization was third among the four greatest of the time on par with Rome, Persia, and China. A theory about the origins of Axum was that it was founded by the Semitic speaking uh, Sabians who crossed the Red Sea from uh, South Arabia, which is now modern day Yemen, in South Arabia. Uh, however, scholars now agree that uh, Sabian, uh, that Sabian influence was neg negligible and, and kingdom was uh, founded, the Axum kingdom was founded by indigenous Africans. So they're always trying to rob us of uh, our accomplishments and achievements. Even going back into ancient times, we see this. Uh, I mean, we, when we deal with civilizations from ancient times, we see they're trying to, and even today as well, trying to rob us of accomplishments and achievements. All right. Uh, I want to go to... The, um, I was talking to Professor Kabahai Watha Kamene one day. Well, I actually called him. He's one of my teachers, but I called him. I've interviewed him a number of times on the African History Network show. But I wanted to ask him about information dealing with the origins of the term America. Because I was hearing different things about the origins of the term America. And he referenced 
the book Fulcrums of Change by Jan Carew. And what happened was he, he faxed, he sent over to me, uh, I think he emailed it to me, uh, the JPEGs of it or what have you, faxed it to me, however he got it to me. But he sent me uh, the pages 91 through 105 of the book Fulcrums of Change by Jan Carew, the uh, historian Jan Carew. And Jan Carew, because uh, uh, Professor Kamba was saying that um, Amerigo Vespucci, the Italian explorer Amerigo Vespucci, he was saying that his real name was not Amerigo, it was uh, Aberigo, Aberigo Vespucci. And that Aberigo Vespucci comes in contact with a group of Black African people in Nicaragua that called themselves the Los Amarisques, the Los Amarisques. And they lived near a mountain called Sierra Amarique, Sierra Amarique. So they called themselves Los Amarisques. And is, is these people, these African people in Nicaragua who uh, Aberigo Vespucci comes in contact with, and he changes his name from Aberigo to Amerigo. All right. So Professor Kaba told me about this. Then he sent over um, these these pages from the book Fulcrum of Change. And, and I read through those pages. And Jan Carew goes deep into the history and the etymology of the word America. He talks about a very go changing his name, all of this. So I interviewed Professor Kaba on, on my on the African History Network show. Uh, February 3rd, 2016, we dealt with the origin of the word America, the origin of the word America. Uh, if you go to our website, uh, go to our new website, theafricanhistorynetwork.com, africanhistorynetwork.com is our old website. But you, if you go there, if you go to africanhistorynetwork.com, it will uh, forward you to, uh, it'll redirect you to our new website, theafricanhistorynetwork.com, and click on uh, listen to podcasts right on the homepage where it shows the information dealing with the radio show. Click on listen to podcast and you can go back in the audio podcast of the African History Network show back to February 3rd, 2016. You can listen to that show. Now, uh, the Noah Webster Dictionary, 1828 edition. The Noah Webster Dictionary. If you look up the word American, okay. If you look up the word American, it'll tell you that uh an american the noun is a native of america and it'll tell you that the word american a-m-e-r-i-c-a-n american originally applied to the aboriginals or copper colored races found in the americas by europeans it originally applied to the aboriginal or copper colored races found in the Americas by Europeans, but now applied to the descendants of Europeans born in America. So as we talked about earlier in the course, and we dealt with uh, information from Dr. David M. Hotel, who wrote the book, The First Americans Were Africans Documented Evidence. And we, we talked about the Khoisan and the Khoisan have the oldest DNA on the planet. And we talked about the discovery by Dr. Albert Goodyear from uh, 2004 in Allendale County, South Carolina, 
which uh, documents an African presence in this country going back at least 51,700 years ago. These are the Khoisan, who are the ancestors to Dainu and the Twa, and they go all around the world, and they were here as well. And we know that uh, Dr. Albert Goodyear and his team in 2004, they found artifacts, architecture, campsites, carvings, Egyptian writings, footprints, and lava, genetic M174D halfway groups dealing with DNA and genetics, linguistics, paintings, skulls, skeleton structures, and tools. They found 13 different types of evidence documented African presence here in this country going back at least 51,700 years ago. We know there's evidence of Khoisan in South America going back uh, at least 56,000 years ago, but it could possibly go back as much as 100,000 years ago. Um, when, uh, when you look at the article from the New York Times and some recent research that came out over the past few years, we talked about this a uh, few classes ago. So uh, this is Dr. Albert Goodyear here as well uh, in the article from ScienceDaily.com. New evidence puts man in North America 50,000 years ago from November 18, 2004. And we talked about the Khoisan last class, okay? All right. And we know the Khoisan. Uh, lived mainly in Southern Africa, uh, in Botswana, Namibia, Angola, Zambia, Zimbabwe, South Africa, etc. Right. So when you go and look at this, they're telling you that the term American originally did not refer to Europeans. And, and there was African people and people who we call Native Americans that Europeans found in the Americas when they got here, when they got to the Americas. So they're telling you that the term America or American did not originally apply to Europeans. Which, once again, reinforces not the David M. Hotep's book, which is backed up by 713 footnotes and seven peer-reviewed articles in his new book is the first americans where africans expanded and revised I, I just interviewed i interviewed him october 12 2021 about his new book so this once again reinforces that uh, the original americans were not europeans all right bantu stephen biko one of our great South African freedom, freedom fighters, he said the most potent weapon in the hands of the oppressor is the mind of the oppressed. He was portrayed in the 1987 movie Cry Freedom by Denzel Washington, Bantu Stephen Biko. The most potent weapon in the hands of the oppressor is the mind of the oppressed. All right, now, um, I want to get to, we're going to get to this part here, deal some with the Moors, and we'll continue that in the next class. Uh, there's a part I need to get to first before we get to that, because that gets into 711 AD. I need to deal with this part here, dealing with the Middle Ages, or what are also called the Dark Ages. And let me see, do I have that up? We need to bring this up here. Uh, this is at history.com. History.com is the official website of the History Channel. This deals with the Middle Ages.
me bring up this article here. So when we talk about the Middle Ages or what some people call the Dark Ages as well, this is a period of time from about 476 Common Era to the early 1300s, okay? Because uh, in the 1300s, 14th century, Europe is coming out of the Dark Ages, going into the next age, the Renaissance age. And we know it's going to be the teachings that the Moors take into Europe that bring Europe out of the Dark Ages. And everything we taught Europeans came back to kick us in the behind. Everything we taught Europeans came back to kick us in the behind. All right. And we're going to see what leads to the transatlantic slave trade taking place as well. This is why I say I wish we had never taught them. OK. All right. We're going to post who still needs to register for this uh, 12 week online history class. Um, I'm going to post the link here again. You can register for this. As soon as you register, you can watch the previous classes. And we also have the, the, the classes in the bundle pack where you can register for this one. And the second one I teach on Sundays from the Civil War to the Civil Rights Movement of Black Power, 1865 to 1968. So the bundle pack is on sale right now, $100. That's a $360 value. Okay, if we look here at um, this article, Middle Ages, from uh, history.com, people, people use the phrase Middle Ages to describe Europe between the fall of the Roman Empire, 476 AD, and we dealt with talked some about the fall of the Roman Empire, the Western portion of the Roman Empire. We talked some about that uh, last class. Uh, the fall of uh, Rome in 476 AD to the uh, Vandals and the Visigoths, and the beginning of the Renaissance in the 14th in, in the 14th century, which is the 1300s. Many scholars call the era the medieval period instead. Uh, Middle Ages, they say, incorrectly implies, Middle Ages, they say, incorrectly implies that the period is an insignificant blip sandwiched between two much more important epochs, okay, or periods of time. So some people call it Middle Ages, other people call it the medieval period. Some people call it the Dark Ages because there was um, not a lot of... Um, scientific advancement inventions things like that during that period of time and europe was enthralled in uh, a civil war and famine things like this during this period and they're hit with uh in the 14th century 1347 to 1400 they hit with the black death the bubonic plague and during that period of time we know europe loses between a quarter to one third of the population now um the Middle Ages, birth of an idea. The phrase Middle Ages tells us more about the Renaissance or Renaissance period that followed it than it does about the era itself. Starting around the 14th century, European thinkers, writers, and artists began to look back and celebrate the art and culture of ancient Greece and Rome. Celebrate the art and culture of ancient Greece and Rome. Now, a lot of that art and culture was influenced by ancient Kemet also, by the way. Accordingly, they dismissed the, the period after the fall of Rome as a middle or even dark age in which no scientific accomplishments have been made, no great art produced, no great leaders born. The people of the Middle Ages had squandered the, the, the advancements of their predecessors. This argument went 
this argument went that the, the, the people of the Middle Ages had squandered the advancements of their predecessors and mired themselves instead in what 18th century English historian Edward Gibbon uh, called barbarism and religion. Barbarism and religion. Okay, now, uh, between 1347 and 1350, a mysterious disease known as the Black Death or the Bubonic Plague killed 20 million people in Europe, 30% of the continent's population. It was especially deadly in cities where it was impossible to prevent the transmission of the disease from one person to another. Now, this way of thinking, uh, referring to the Middle Ages, this way of thinking about the era in the middle of the fall of Rome and the rise of the Renaissance prevailed until relatively recently. However, today scholars note that the era was a complex and it was as complex and vibrant as any other. Okay, so you have uh, the Catholic Church in the Middle Ages. Uh, in 800 Common Era, uh, for example, Pope Leo II named the Frankish king Charlemagne uh, the quote-unquote emperor of the Romans, the first uh, since, that since the Roman Empire's fall more than 300 years ago. Over time, uh, Charlemagne's realm became the Holy Roman Empire, became the Holy Roman Empire, one of uh, several political entities in Europe whose interests tended to align with those of the church. Ordinary people across Europe had to tithe T-I-T-H-E, tithe 10% of their earnings each year to the church. They ain't tied 10% each week. They, they, they tithe 10% of their earnings each year, not each week. I'll, I'll leave that right there. At the same time, the church was mostly exempt from taxation. These policies helped it to amass a great deal of money and power, a great deal of money and power. There's a whole, you know, Dr. Ray Higgins has like some really good information on tithing and how uh, a lot of, uh, and also, you know, they were tithing not just money, they were tithing, tithing like livestock, things like this. Um, yeah, Dr. Ray Higgins has some good information on tithing and how ministers some ministers and pastors not all of them, some ministers and pastors have misused passages from the bible to then teach that you're supposed to tithe 10 percent of your earnings or things like this okay but you you dealing with it this, see this is one of the problems with that this may go outside the circumference of some people's awareness um this is you're dealing with if you deal with the Helios Biblos or the Sun Book, S-U-N, or the Bible, because Helios is, is in reference to Sun, S-U-N, not S-O-N. 
you're dealing with a different period of time in a different region of the world, different countries under different laws. So just trying to extrapolate that and apply that to today in the United States and in Detroit, Michigan and Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, things like this under in a different region of the world in a different political structure. It's different. It's totally different. But okay. Um, the Middle Ages and the rise of Islam. So meanwhile, the Islamic world was growing larger and more powerful. After so, we know they conquered uh, Kemet uh, around. Six in seventh century AD, right around 642 uh common era. They con uh AD, they conquered the Muslims, uh conquered uh Egypt. Meanwhile, the Islamic world was growing larger and more powerful after the Prophet Muhammad's death in 632 uh common era. Armies conquered large parts of large parts of the Middle East uniting them under the rule of a single caliph at its height the medieval islamic world was more than three times bigger than all of christendom the christian world all of christendom at its height the mid the uh medieval islamic world was more than three times larger than all of the christian world Now, under the caliphs, uh, great cities such as Cairo, Baghdad, and, and Damascus fostered a vibrant intellectual and cultural life. Poets, scientists, and philosophers wrote thousands of books on paper, a Chinese invention that had made its way into the Islamic world by the 8th century. Okay, now we know that that type of paper may have been a Chinese invention, but but we know that in the Nile Valley region of, of Africa, hundreds of years before that, they were they were using what was called papyrus, which was a form of paper as well. Okay, developed from trees, papyrus. Okay, p a p y r u s, papyrus. Now scholars translated Greek. Iranian and Indian texts into Arabic. Inventors devised technologies like the pinhole camera, uh, which existed long before the uh, Daguerreotype camera, the, the, the Daguerreotype invented by John Daguerreotype in uh, the mid 1820s or so, right around 1826. This was an early form of the camera, the pinhole camera. Uh, soap, windmills, so inventors devised technologies uh, like the uh, pinhole camera. And let me go, okay, right here. Like the pinhole camera, soap, windmills, uh, surgical instruments, and early, fly, and, uh, and early flying machines and the system of numerals that we use today because like zero is an arabic numeral 
Okay. So the uh, uh, system of numerals that we use today and religious scholars and mystics translated, interpreted and taught the Quran and other scriptural texts to people across the Middle East. Okay. So then you have the Crusades as well that we'll talk about next class because that gets into 11th century common era 1096 ad uh because next class we'll talk about uh, the crusades and we'll talk about uh, christopher columbus and the african holocaust slavery and the rise of european capitalism by dr john henrik clark toward the end of the 11th century uh the catholic church began uh to authorize military expeditions or crusades to expel muslim quote-unquote infidels with what they called infidels from the holy land uh crusaders who wore red crosses on their coats to advertise their status believed that their service would guarantee the remission of their sins and ensure that they could spend all in eternity in heaven okay it would guarantee they believed that their service uh, and these were called uh, the, the, the uh, poor knights of Christ. Uh, they're later going to be called the Knights Templar when the Knights Templar are founded around 1118 uh, Common Era. OK, they're going to be called the Knights Templar and become very powerful. We'll talk about that more uh, next class because we'll get into the Crusades next class. Um, believe that they so they believe that their service would guarantee the remission of their sins and ensure that they could spend all eternity in heaven now they also received more worldly rewards uh such as uh papal protection protection from the pope protection from the catholic church uh, uh papal protection of their property and forgiveness of some kinds of loans and payments we know it's going to be the Crusades began in 1095 AD when Pope Urban II summoned a Christian army to fight its way uh, to, to fight its way to Jerusalem and continued on and off until the end of the 15th century. In 1099 Common Era, uh, armies captured Jerusalem from Muslim control and groups of pilgrims across Western Europe started visiting the Holy Land. Many of them, however, were robbed and killed as they crossed through Muslim-controlled territories during, uh, during the journey. Around 1118 AD, a French knight named Hughes de, de Payens created a military order along with eight relatives and acquaintances that became known as the Knights Templar, the Knights Templar. And they won the eventual support of the Pope and a reputation for being fearsome fighters. The fall of Acre in 1291 AD, or Common Era, marked the destruction of the last remaining Crusader refuge in the Holy Land. And Pope Clement V dissolved the, Knight, the Knights Templar in 1312 Common Era. Okay, so we'll talk more about the Knights Templar and the Crusades uh next class okay and then you have the black death the bubonic plague that hits um the first um the the, the first wave of it basically is going to be like 1347 to 1350 
but it is going to hit on and off from 1347 to 1400 the black death okay so that's um a, a brief synopsis of um the middle ages okay now the uh bubonic plague started in europe in october 1347 with 12 ships from uh the black sea docked at the sicilian port of messina sicilian port of messina uh most sailors aboard the ships were dead most sailors aboard the ships were dead uh and those who were alive were covered in black boils that oozed uh blood and pus okay most sailors aboard the ships were dead and those who were alive were covered in in black boils that oozed blood and pus now symptoms of the black death included um uh, fever symptoms of the black death included fever chills vomiting diarrhea terrible aches and pains and then death victims could go to bed feeling healthy and be dead uh the next morning uh the bubonic plague killed uh cows pigs goats chicken and even sheep leading to a wool shortage uh in europe leading to a wool shortage in europe understandably terrified by the uh, mysterious disease some people so, uh, some people of the middle ages believed the plague was a divine punishment for sin to obtain forgiveness some people became uh flagellants uh traveling to europe to put on public displays of penance that could include whipping and beating one another others turned on their neighbors purging people they believed to be heretics okay heretics doing things against christianity uh saying things against christianity being a heretic or you know Aunt Esther may call it being a heathen okay but uh a heretic so others turned on their neighbors purging people they believed to be heretics thousands of jews were murdered between 1348 and 1349 while others fled to less populated areas of eastern europe today scientists know that the black death the bubonic plague was caused by um a bas uh, a bacillus uh called yersinia pestis uh, which travels through the air and can also be contracted through the bite of an infected flea, through the bite of an infected, infected flea. And this is what uh, I was watching a video. They think that happened. They think a flea bit like a rat or something like that, infected the rat, and then the rat bites the humans or, or something, and then it spreads. Now, when we look at the Middle Ages economics and society in Middle you're in middle europe rural life was governed by a system scholars call feudalism feudalism and we'll talk about this uh we'll talk about the feudalistic system uh more next class 
when we get into uh, the Crusades in Dr. John Henry Clark's book, um, Christopher Columbus and the African Holocaust, Slavery and the Rise of European Capitalism, because he references that. Uh, so we'll talk about this more in that class, because that plays the feudalistic system comes into play when we deal with the uh, uh, comes into play when we deal with the uh, Crusades. OK, feudalistic system comes into play there. All right, let's continue. So how do you all like this type of information? Share this broadcast on your uh, social media platforms, Facebook and YouTube. Invite your friends to tune in. Give us a thumbs up. Give us a heart. Give us a like on this broadcast. Um, let us know how you like this. This is class number nine of a 12-week online history class that I teach. Normally, it's 10 weeks, but a couple of uh, Two or three of the sessions early on, I had to cut short because my allergy was really bothering me. And uh, during the weekend of Juneteenth, I was busy all over the place doing lectures, things like that. So we didn't teach a class. But uh, normally we do this class on Saturdays, 2 p.m. to 4 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. And we do the sessions live. All the sessions are archived and recorded. So you can go back and watch it anytime. Uh, so even a year from now, two years from now, you can go back and watch the entire class. This is ancient Kemet, the Moors, and the Ma'afa, understanding the transatlantic slave trade, what they didn't teach you in school. The class is on sale $60, regularly $130. We have the information uh, also at our website, uh, African History Network. have the link and the information to the broadcast so you can read it for it and you can go back and watch the previous classes and join us next week for uh, next class. But if you visit our new website, TheAfricanHistoryNetwork.com, TheAfricanHistoryNetwork.com. We have the information here for the online class, Ancient Kemet, the Moors, and the Ma'afa, Understanding the Transatlantic Slave Trade. Also, you can um, register You can uh, register for the bundle pack of, of, of both classes for only $100. And if you've taken any of my online classes in the past, email us at um, ahnshow at AfricanHistoryNetwork.com, ahnshow at AfricanHistoryNetwork.com. Okay, you get 50% off on the bundle pack. The, the, uh, the class I teach on Sundays normally uh, normally 2 p.m. to 4 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, normally on Sundays. Um, we won't be teaching on um, on the 17th. I won't teach it on the 17th because I'm at an event all day. The second class I teach is uh, from the Civil War to the Civil Rights Movement and Black Power, 1865 to 1968. Okay. And we start in um, 1803 with the Louisiana Purchase, and we deal with history from um, 1803 through 1968. We deal with what leads up to the Civil War taking place. We deal with Reconstruction, 1865-1877. Uh, we deal with uh, Jim Crow era, World War One, World War Two, Civil Rights Movement, Black Power Movement, and, and the Great Migration. Great Migration was uh, 1915 to 1970. Okay, so we deal with all that in that second class. And it's the same format. We do the sessions live. All the sessions are archived and recorded. You can go back and watch uh, watch that class anytime as well. So a year from now, two years from now, you can go back and watch these classes in their entirety. All right. So in medieval Europe, real life was governed by a system scholars call feudalism. Feudalism. 
in a feudal society, the king granted large pieces of land uh, called uh, fiefs to noblemen and bishops, landless peasants known as serfs, known as serfs. So you hear about the, uh, the, 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 the serfs and the lords. Landless peasants known as serfs did most of the work on the fiefs. Uh, they planted and harvested crops and gave most of the produce to the landowner. Kind of reminds you of sharecropping. Kind of reminds you of sharecropping. In exchange for their labor, they were, they were allowed to live on the land. They were also promised protection in case of enemy invasion. Okay. Now, during the uh, 11th century, uh, 11th century AD, during the 11th century, however, the feudal life began to change. Agricultural innovations such as the heavy plow and three field crop rotation made farming more efficient and productive. So farm, so fewer farm workers were needed, but thanks to the expanded and improved food supply, the population grew. Okay, thanks to the expanded and improved food supply, the population grew, and and uh, because of these cultural, the agricultural innovations, because of these advancements, you needed less farmers. Um, as a result, more and more people were drawn to towns and cities. Meanwhile, the Crusades had expanded trade routes to the east and given Europeans a taste for imported goods such as wine, olive oil, and luxurious textiles. As the commercial economy developed, port cities in particular thrived. As the commercial economy developed, port cities in particular thrived. By 1300 AD, there were some 15 cities in Europe with a population of more than 50,000 people. In these cities, a new era was born, the Renaissance era, okay, the Renaissance era. The Renaissance was a time of great intellectual and economic change, but it was not a it was not a complete rebirth. It had its roots in the world of the Middle Ages. Okay, so this is a brief synopsis of the Middle Ages because this that also deals with the history of the Moors in, in medieval Europe as well. Okay, that period of time. So you're looking at 476. A.D. with the fall of the Western portion of the Roman Empire to uh, the 14th century to like the early 1300s. OK, now, if we look at this article here from um, National Geographic. OK, this article from National Geographic called Who Were the Moors? Who Were the Moors? And can you all hear me OK? I want to make sure the audio is good. It sound, sounds all right on my end, but I want to make sure I'm coming through people can hear me okay so i just want to check the audio here testing testing all right and let me see something here all right and testing Okay, let's continue here. I just want to test that because I have the air conditioning running here in the office, so I just want to make sure you all can hear okay. 
Okay, so if we look at this article here from uh, National Geographic, who are the Moors? If the term seems familiar from art and literature but still confusing, there's a good reason. So if the term more seems uh, familiar but confusing, uh, there's a reason. Though the term can be found throughout literature, art, and history books, it does not actually describe uh, a specific ethnicity or race. So the, the Moors were predominantly African people, but you're going to have like Tawny Moors, you're going to, um, you're going to have some Arabs who get classified as Moors as well. So it does not specifically denote a race. And we'll get, we're going to get deeper into this here in just a minute. Instead, the concept of Moors has been uh, used to describe alternate, alternative, alternatively the reign of Muslims in Spain, Europeans of African descent, and others for centuries. Derived from the Latin word maras, M-A-U-R-S, the term was originally used to describe Berbers and other people from the ancient Roman province of Mauritania. Now, you may see Mauritania spelled M-A-U-R-I or M-A-U-R-E because in when you reference um, Golden Age of the Moor, when you reference Golden Age of the Moor, edited by Dr. Ivan Van Sertema, we'll get into this here in just a minute. When you reference Golden Age of the Moor, they talk about uh, Mauritania, but they spell it with an I, M-A-U-R-I which is in reference to Marie, okay? Marie, which is in reference to the Moors also. Okay, so derived from the Latin word maras, the term was originally used to describe Berbers and other people from the ancient Roman province of Mauritania in what is now North Africa. Over time, it was, it, over time, it was increasingly applied to Muslims living in Europe. Over time, it was increasingly applied to Muslims living in Europe. Beginning in the Renaissance, just talked about the Renaissance era, so starting in the 1300s, be beginning in the Renaissance, the word more and blackamore were also used to describe any person with dark skin. Now, uh, Al-Andalus Al is what the Moors are going to call the southern portion of Spain that they settle in after they defeat the Vandals and the Visigoths when they go in in 711 AD. Al-Andalus, which means uh, something like to walk in the spiritual path or walk in the spiritual light. Um, here is the, I'm going to go back to the PowerPoint presentation here. Here's the um, actual... I'll show you this map here. It's the map is not coming up there, right here. Okay, Al-Andalus, um, Spain and Morocco, 756 common era. So you see Morocco and Mauritania next to each other, Northern Africa. We see that Spain and Portugal, which was called the Iberian Peninsula back at this time, back in 711 AD, we see they're right above Morocco. It's a very short distance that separates them, okay? So um, 
And also, we're going to see that historically the complexions of um, the more, uh, sorry, the complexions of the Spanish and Portuguese, historically, we're going to see their complexions are going to be darker than uh, those further east into Europe, like uh, like the Germans and the British, the English, things like this. Even though the Moors are in those areas, Germany and Czechoslovakia and Austria, uh, England, etc., is going to be to a lesser extent. They're going to be more because of the closer proximity to North Africa, especially Morocco. Uh, Spain and Portugal are going to get the brunt of that intermixing of the bloodlines. Okay, Spain, Portugal, Italy gets it a lot, Sicily, things like this. But it's going to be to a lesser extent in England, Germany, Austria, even though it does happen there, is going to be to a lesser extent compared to Spain and Portugal. Okay, uh, I want to go back to this one right here. Let's go back to this article here. So on 7-11 AD, a group of uh, North African Muslims led by Berber general Tariq Ibn Ziyad captured the Iberian Peninsula, modern-day Spain and Portugal. Uh, known as Al-Andalus, the territory became a prosperous and cultural uh, prosperous cultural and economic center where education and the arts and sciences flourished, where education, the arts and sciences flourished. Over time, the strength of the Muslim state diminished, creating inroads for uh, Christians who resented Mus Muslim ru uh, Moorish rule because there was going to be um, an increasing amount of resentment and host hostility towards the Moors from Christians, from Catholics, from Europeans. Um, and when they go in, you know, they're, they're looked at as like, almost superhuman because they're bringing in the science and mathematics and uh different types of foods and different musical instruments they're bringing all this into uh europe okay but they're going to be we'll get to this more uh, next class uh there's going to be hostilities that uh that will ensue and then also there's going to be an intermixing of the bloodlines and there's going to be to various extents a changing in the complexion of europeans as well so we're going to see this hostility uh build up also so for centuries christian groups challenged muslim territorial dominance in al-andalus and slowly expanded their territory this culminated in 1492 when catholic monarchs uh, King Ferdinand II and Queen Isabella I won the Granada War and completed Spain's conquest of the Iberian Peninsula. So that's January 2nd, 1492, General Boabdil, the Moorish general, uh, surrenders. And this was the, the Moors' last stronghold, okay? Um, this was the Moors' last stronghold. Now we, now we know August 3rd, 1492, Christopher Columbus is going to set sail uh, on his first of four voyages on the Nina, the Penta, and the Santa Maria. This is going to be later 
in the same year that uh, the Moors lose control of their last stronghold and later in the same year. So what is what's known as the Reconquista is going to be completed with the uh, uh, the Reconquista is going to be completed with the uh, defeat of the Moors, okay, in 1492. The Reconquista is the uh, effort of, in Spain, is the effort of these Europeans to take back control of these territories that the Moors have conquered, the Reconquista, the Reconquest, okay? So that that uh, is completed in 1492. It starts in about 722 common era the reconquista so for centuries um christian groups for centuries christian groups challenged muslim territorial dominance in al-andalus and slowly expanded their territory this culminated in 1492 when catholic monarchs uh king ferdinand and queen isabella won the Granada War and completed Spain's conquest of the Iberian Peninsula. Eventually, the Moors were expelled from Spain. And we know that some some of those, some, so some Moors are going to flee. We know some Moors are going to be conquered and enslaved, and they're going to be taken into these Spanish colonies that uh, that uh, Spain conquers, like, like what Columbus conquers on his encounters on his four voyages, uh, the, the Jamaica and uh, Santo Domingo, um, you know, the island, the Hispaniola, I say, the island of Hispaniola, okay, uh, where, where, and we know the western third of Hispaniola is where uh, Haiti is going to be. We, we know that becomes um, the western third of the island of Hispaniola in 1697 is going to become under French control. Okay, they get that from the Spanish, but uh, you know Jamaica, um, uh, Puerto Rico, uh, Cuba, things like this. They're going to be Africans that the Spanish are going to take into these territories that and others, but especially these that Columbus conquers on his four voyages. So eventually, the Moors were expelled from Spain. Some of these Moors are going to be enslaved. Now, by the by, then the idea of Moors had spread across Europe. Moor, M-O-R, M-O-O-R, came to mean anyone who was Muslim or had dark skin. Occasionally, Europeans would distinguish themselves. Would, sorry, occasionally, Europeans would distinguish between uh, black Moors and black Moors and white Moors. Now, one of the most famous mentions of Moors is in Shakespeare's play, The Tragedy of Othello, The Moor of Venice. The Tragedy of Othello, The Moor of Venice. Its titular character is a Moor who serves as a general in the Venetian army. Hold on just a second. Who serves as a Moor in the Venetian army. In Shakespeare time, Shakespeare's time, the port city of venice was ethnically diverse and the moors represented a growing interchange between europe the moors represented a growing interchange between europe 
the Middle East, Asia, and Africa. Despite his military prowess, Othello is also portrayed as exotic, uh, hypersexual, and untrustworthy. He's called a, a lascivious Moor, who secretly marries a white woman, reflecting historic stereotypes of black people, Desdemona. So this is the episode of Sanford and Son, right? Where Lamont is in the living room uh, and he's rehearsing. He, he's in the living room at his house, 9114 South Central Avenue, right? And he's rehearsing Othello with his drama teacher. And she's a white woman who lives in Beverly Hills. And there's the scene where Othello is choking Desdemona and Fred and Bubba are outside. They they see this. They don't know that they that they, they they don't know that they are rehearsing. And Fred has a heart attack. He thinks his son is choking a white woman to death, right? So then they go inside, and Fred tells them, I mean, Lamont tells them, no, we're just rehearsing. This is Othello. And he says Othello was a Moor. Okay. They actually say this on the show. They say they say Othello was a Moor. Okay. So they, so you you'll see this, but Othello. Despite his military prowess, he's portrayed as exotic, hypersexual, which is a stereotype, a stereotype of, Af of African people, and untrustworthy, a lascivious Moor who secretly marries a white woman, reflecting historic stereotypes of African people, especially African Americans. More recently, the term has been co-opted by the sovereign citizen movement in the United States. Members of more sovereign citizen groups claim they are descended descended from Moors who predated white settlers in North America and that they are part of a sovereign nation and not subject to U.S. laws. Now, you do have, I know some people who watch the time Moors, things like this. You do have, you do have nations like that, just like you have Native American nations, okay? Just like you have Native American nations. But you have some people who are distorting that information and getting a whole lot of people into trouble. Um, it's proof, uh, it's proof of the ongoing allure of more as a seemingly legitimate ethnic designation, even though its meaning has never been clear. So the term more is also, it can, can be a very nebulous term. And we know that also when you look at Berber, uh, when you read golden age of the more, they talk about how the, uh, the term Berber, um, the, the um, the term Berber was used by Arabs to refer to the Moors. Okay. That is, um, okay. So this is this article here. Who were the Moors right here? I have a subscription to National Geographic. I pay them $24 a month because I reference uh, different articles um, from that. I read National Geographic reference to different articles in my classes. So I had to get a subscription to them. Okay. We're going to go for a few more minutes. How's everybody doing? Uh, be sure to register for this uh, this time around that we do is going to be 12 weeks because uh, we had to cut uh, two or three of the classes short early on. So this is a 12 week online class that I teach normally on Saturdays, uh, 2 p.m. to 4 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. So we're doing it later today. Uh, and it, we teach this at my online school. OK, so we don't it's not talk here on social media. We teach this at our online school. Um, and the name of this class is Ancient Kemet, the Moors, and the Ma'afa, Understanding the Transatlantic Slave Trade, where they didn't teach you in school. 
and we deal with thousands of years of history and uh, what leads up to the transatlantic slave trade taking place also. So classes on sale, $60. We do a PowerPoint presentation. We have book references, articles, video clips, uh, all of that in the class. We do the sessions live. All the sessions are archived and recorded. You can go back and watch it anytime. So as soon as you register, you can go back and watch the previous classes. Um, I would say this information is uh, PG-13. So you can use this content with your children as well. And it's a very visual class uh, also. And we, uh, we have video clips in it, articles, book references, everything. Okay. So the class is regularly $130 on sale. $60. So you can, uh, we have the information to register here in the thread of the broadcast. And I just posted it also. And it's at our website, uh, theafricanhistorynetwork.com, theafricanhistorynetwork.com. And we have the bundle pack where you can register for both classes uh, that I teach for uh, $100. All right, now uh, let's continue here. So there was a article a good article that Renoko Rashidi wrote for uh, AtlantaBlackStar.com and we reference uh, uh, also Renoko's book uh, Black Star the African Presence in Early Europe so we reference um, in the class we reference Golden Age of the Moor edited by Dr. Ivan Van Sertima and Renoko Rashidi has an essay in this book as well uh, also, uh, Dr. Jose Pimenta Bay has an essay in this book. Dr. Jose Pimenta Bay is a brilliant, brilliant scholar and uh, historian, and uh, he's, he's a brilliant scholar when it comes to the history of the Moors. Um, I, he was one of my first interviews I did in 2010 when I started the African History Network show. He was one of my first interviews. He used to teach classes on the history of the Moors at Temple University. Then he moved over to Berea College in Kentucky. Okay, so I have to get in contact with them. Uh, we're Facebook friends. I need to get in contact with them to uh, interview them again. But this is um, Black Star, the African Presence in Early Europe by Renoko Rashidi. We know Renoko passed away August 2nd, uh, 2021, while he was in Egypt. So Renoko was a friend of mine. I interviewed him, I think, about six times on the African History Network show. But Renoko wrote a really good article for uh, AtlantaBlackStar.com uh, called uh, Moors, Saints, Knights, and Kings. Moors, Saints, Knights, and Kings, the African presence in uh, medieval and Renaissance Europe. The African presence in medieval and Renaissance Europe. And here's an excerpt of the article. Um, the study of the African presence in history, whether in the African diaspora or Africa itself is a richly rewarding endeavor. In this study, we realize that slavery alone, slavery alone is not African history. Slavery alone is not African history and that uh, African history is everybody's history. The history of African people, black people is rich and comprehensive, inspiring and often little known. Nowhere is this more the case than the African presence in medieval and Renaissance Europe. The African presence in medieval and Renaissance Europe. Okay, now let me go. Okay, right here. 
uh, according to the Oxford English Dictionary, the Moors, as early as the Middle Ages and as late as the 17th century, were, quote, commonly supposed to be black or very swarthy, black or very swarthy, and henceforth, henceforth, uh, hence the word is often used for negro or negro. Early in the 18th century, after a grim and extended resistance to Arab invasion of North Africa, to the Arab invasion of North Africa, the Moors joined the triumphant surge of Islam. Following this, uh, the 8th century, I think I say 18th century, the 8th century, okay? Uh, early in the 8th century common era, after a grim and extended resistance to the Arab invasions of North Africa, the Moors joined the triumphant surge of Islam. Following this, they crossed over from Morocco over to uh, the Iberian Peninsula, which today is called Spain and Portugal, where they were, where their swift victories and remarkable feats soon became the substance of legends. Soon became the substance of legends. So this goes back to. Um, he, he said crossed over from Morocco over to the Iberian Peninsula. So this goes back to the um, map that I showed you from uh, about 756 uh, Common Era, uh, Al-Andalus, Spain, Port in Portugal, and we see Morocco and Mauritania. We see how close Morocco is to uh, Spain, Al-Andalus. Al All right, now. In July 17, uh, Tarif with 400 soldiers, not Tarif, but Tarif, Tarif with 400 soldiers and uh, 100 horses, all Berbers, successfully carried out a mission in southern Iberia. Tarif, T-A-R-I-F, an important port city in southern Spain is named after Tarif. It is clear, however, that the conquest of Spain was undertaken upon the initiative of Tariq ibn Ziyad. Tariq was in command of an army of at least uh, 10,000 men. Now, depending upon which source you look at, how many men he had will vary, okay? But Renoko Rashidi puts it at at least 10,000 men. In 711 AD, uh, the bold uh, General Tariq ibn Ziyad crossed the straits and disembarked near a rock promontory, uh, which from that day since has, has borne his name. It, they call it Jebel Tariq, D-J-A-B-A-L, Jebel Tariq, which is Arabic. It means Tariq's mountain, Tariq's mountain. Is named after General Tariq Ibn Ziyad, an African man of war. Okay. So when you hear, uh, uh, and, and today they call it Gibraltar or the Rock of Gibraltar. Jebel, Gibraltar comes from Jebel Tariq, okay, Tariq's mountain. So when you hear them talk about Gibraltar or the Rock of Gibraltar, that's in reference to an African man. In August of 711 AD, Tariq Ibn Ziyad won paramount victory over the opposing uh, European army 
on the eve of the battle, Tariq is alleged to have uh, roused his troops uh, with the uh, with the following words. On the eve of the battle, he's alleged to have aroused his troops with the following words. My brethren, the enemy is before you. The sea is behind. Whither would ye fly? Whither would ye fly? Would, whither would ye fly? Why ye, ye follow your general? I am resolved either to lose my life or to trample on the prostrate king of the Romans. End quote. Wasting no time to relish his victory, Tariq ibn Ziyad pushed on with his dashing and seemingly tireless Moorish cavalry to the Spanish city of Toledo. Toledo. Within a month's time, uh, General Tariq ibn Ziyad had effectively terminated European dominance of the Iberian Peninsula. This is a good article that uh, Renoco wrote for uh, AtlantaBlackStar.com. It's called Moors, Saints, Knights, and Kings, the African Presence in Medieval and Renaissance Europe from uh, June 1st, 2014. Now, in the aftermath of these brilliant struggles, thousands of Moors uh, flooded into the Iberian Peninsula. So eager were they to come that some are said to have floated over on tree trunks. Tariq Ibn Ziyad himself, at the conclusion of his illustrious military career, retired to the distant east we are informed to spread the teachings of Islam. There's really no need to speculate on the ethnicity of these early uh, invaders. Of, uh, there's really no need to speculate on the ethnicity of these early invaders of the conquest period. Primary Christian sources relating to the conquest, particularly the Primera Chronica uh, uh, General of uh, Alfonso X, make the following observation regarding the Moors. Their faces, their faces were black as pitch. The handsomest among them was as black as a cooking pot. Their faces were black as pitch. The handsomest among them was as black as a cooking pot. Now, uh, if we go to, let's see, we go back to this. Uh, so who, um, referring, referring to the question again, who are the Moors or who were the Moors? The Moors' ancestors were known as the Garamantes. The Garamantes uh, were a black African people living in North Africa. Hannibal Barca was Garamanti. Okay, we know the Carthaginians, uh, descendants of the Phoenicians, these were all Garamantes, as well as St. Augustine. Uh, George G.M. James in the book Stolen Legacy, um, he said that the Moors were the custodians of the ancient Egyptian mystery system. And these teachings are going to bring Europe out of the Dark Ages or out of the Middle Ages. Okay, and then you can also reference the uh, article that we already referenced from National Geographic, Who Were the Moors? Who were the Moors? Now, the origin of the word Moor, 
what is the origin what's the etymological derivation of the word more the word more is derived from the greek word maros m-a-u-r-o-s um, which lit literally means black or a very dark color uh you'll also see the word maros m-a-u-r-u-s now the romans adopted the word and called them mari m-a-u-r-i the mari were a Northwest African people who were very dark-skinned, a Northwest African people who were very dark-skinned. The Romans will refer to the region of, uh, to the region of Northwest Africa as Mauritania, Mauritania. They spell it M-A-U-R-I, Mauritania. Mauritania is Latin and means the land of the black-skinned people, the land of the black-skinned people. You'll also see the word marish, which is Latin as well, marish. And then the, the Latin word maras, M-A-U-R-U-S, is that's derived from the Greek word maros, M-A-U-R-O-S. Okay, this is all in reference to the Moors. Now, Romans later adopt the word as a reference for the black-skinned inhabitant. They, they later adopt the word Mauritania as a reference uh, for the black-skinned inhabitants uh they incur they encountered i'm sorry they'll later later adopt the word mari uh, as a reference for the black-skinned inhabitants they encountered in africa um so you can read pages 527 and 187 of golden age of the moor edited by dr ivan van sertima they go through it and break this down and deal with some of the etymology of the word more as well Now, variations of the word more, uh, we see in Spanish, marino, M-O-R-E-N-O, -E marino, uh, which means dark, dark complexion, now meaning brunette or dark hair. We see mora, which is Spanish, originally a Moorish woman, now means blackberry, not blackberry, the smartphone that they just discontinued, but blackberry, the fruit. Page seven of Golden Age of the Moor talks about this, uh, mora in Spanish which originally meant a Moorish woman. Now, black, now it means blackberry, the fruit. In Italian, mora means blackberry. In French, morasad means uh, dark-skinned or, or blackamore. And in French, morelan in French means black grape, okay? So these are all references to uh, the, the Moors and, and variations of the word uh, more. You can also see to a certain extent, the impact of the Moors in uh, a uh, country or something like that by the words that are used as well. This is all reference to the Moors. Now, page 40 of Before the Mayflower by Lerone Bennett Jr., page 40 in chapter 2, uh, he says that um, he's they're laying out uh, this history here in the United States and how when the um, early European settlers come, uh, they don't have codified slave laws here in the U.S., even in 1619, when those 20 and odd Africans on the White Lion pirate ship come into Point Comfort in Virginia. The codified slave laws don't exist in any of the 13 colonies. But they're talking about um, the names that were used to denote what we call different races of people at this time. Okay, and how 
what we call white people were not classified as white back at, back at this time in uh, uh, the early 1600s in what we would call 13 colonies, okay? So this is page 40 of uh, before the Mayflower by Lerone Bennett Jr. And let me see something here. Let me... Um, one second here let me see if i have i scan this i want to see if i have um trying to see if I have it in a PDF format. It may be easier to see it. Let me see. Did I save that in the PDF format? Okay, I did not. I just have it in a JPEG. Okay. So what they say here on page, uh, Lerone Bennett Jr., page 40, he says, of all the improbable aspects of this situation, the oddest, the oddest to uh, many blacks and whites is that white people did not, white people did not, uh, let me go, white people did not seem to know that they were white. It appears from surviving evidence that the first white colonists, the first white colonists, had no concept of themselves as white people. It appears from surviving evidence that the first white colonists had no concept of themselves as white people. The legal documents identified what we would call whites or white people. The legal documents identified whites as Englishmen and or Christians. The word white with its burden of arrogance and biological pride developed late in the century. So they're talking about the 17th century. It developed late in the 17th century, late in the 1600s. And this was as a direct result of slavery and the organized debasement of black people or African people. The same point can be made from the other side of the line. For a long time in colonial America, there was no legal name to focus white anxiety. For a long time in colonial America, there was uh, no legal name to focus white anxiety. The first blacks were called blackamores, moors, nagers, N-E-G-E-R-S, N-E-G-E-R-S, nagers, and nagars, N-E-G-A-R-S. The word negro a Spanish and Portuguese term for black did not come into general use in Virginia until the latter part of the century, the latter part of the 17th century, which are the 1600s. Okay. Um, so you can read, uh, check that out in uh, Before the Mayflower by Lerone Bennett Jr. Okay. Excellent, excellent book. He lays out this history in, in chapter two. 
All right, now, uh, let's see here. Did we leave off? Okay, we did that, that, that before the Mayflower Middle Ages. All right, so we're going to wrap up. We're going to wrap up with this today. Hopefully, you learned how you all like this type of information. Give us a thumbs up. Give us a like. Give us a heart on this broadcast. Did you learn anything from this uh, from this class session today? This is class number nine. Normally, this class is, is uh, 10 weeks. This time around, it's going to be 12 weeks. Normally, we teach this at our online school. Don't teach this on social media. It's at our online school. As soon as you register uh, for this uh, 12-week class, you can go back and watch the previous sessions. We do the sessions live. All the sessions are archived and recorded. Uh, you can go back and watch it anytime. The class is regularly $130. It's on sale uh, $60 right now. Um, and you can... Go and let's see here. Uh, I just posted a link here for it. It's in the thread of the broadcast. Also, if you go to our website, our new website, theafricanhistorynetwork.com, theafricanhistorynetwork.com, the information is right here on the homepage of the website as well. Okay, don't worry about which date it is. I updated for each class, basically. But we have the information here. You click register here. It takes you to the next page. And it takes you to uh, our online school on uh, which is at Learn World, okay. And uh, just click right here to enroll. As soon as you enroll, you can start watching the content. And then you can also register for the class that I teach on uh, Sundays as well, uh, from the Civil War to the Civil Rights Movement and Black Power, eighteen sixty five to nineteen sixty eight. Okay. So if you like these classes, uh, you can register for them to help support the African History Network. So let's keep doing the research, stay on the air, keep uh, broadcasting the African History Network show, pay some of the bills, etc. Keep doing the research. Um, and also you can support the African History Network, dollar sign, the AHN show through Cash App, dollar sign, the AHN show through Cash App, also through PayPal, paypal.me forward slash the AHN show, paypal.me forward slash the AHN show as well. Uh, we have the information at our website. When you go to it, um, when you go to our cash app, it, it, it'll say uh, Michael and show my picture there. Uh, so we have the information here for the links for PayPal and cash app. This is our official cash app account, dollar sign, the AHN show, S-H-O-W. Uh, when you go to it, it'll say Michael and show my picture there. These other ones here are fake African History Network cash app accounts. Okay, so that's not us. And there's some other fake ones out there that I've identified and uh, I've alerted to, I've alerted Cash App to them and I'm trying to get them shut down, okay? Cash App launched an investigation a couple of months ago, so I'm trying to get these uh, fake African History Network Cash App accounts shut down. All right, so, uh, and we'll listen, listen to our radio show Sundays, 9 p.m., 11 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, the African History Network show. Uh, the information is at our website as well. Well, 9, 10 a.m., Superstation, WFDF. And we also broadcast here on Facebook and YouTube. Uh, you can listen live on iHeartRadio. Download the iHeartRadio app. Search for 910 AM WFDF. And you can listen to all the shows, all the uh, radio shows on 910 AM. You can listen live or 910 AM uh, WFDF on your AM dial. Uh, we have audio podcasts of our shows, over 1,200 audio podcasts. Click here for listening to podcasts. And also you can search for the African History Network show on iHeartRadio because we're on iHeartRadio, Google Podcasts. Uh, Stitcher, CastBox, FM Player, TuneIn, 
uh, iTunes, uh, it's one of about nine or 10 different audio podcast platforms. Search for the African History Network show. Okay, so hope you learned a lot today. Uh, you can register for the online class. And uh, remember, right now, it's correct, wrong behavior. It's not over till we win. We'll talk to you next time. Peace. Thanks for joining us today.